1: looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
2: When I began preparing for this message, which was really weeks and weeks ago, I decided to take the last month and during my prayer time, to really pray through each one of these so that it would become a more living reality in my own life. And my, did I do more confessing than asking God for something. I felt so, so much that the word of God really spoke to me. And I hope it's coming out from him and not through sin management. But if I could, I'd like to leave these with you and at least pick one out of this list. The more you pick, the better you're going to smell like that bouquet of roses. So see which ones that you need to work on the most yourself. So let's go to number one. Love must be authentic. Look, if you will, in verse nine, it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Now, in the Greek language, there are three different kinds of words for love, and they mean three different things. One is the agapeo love, which is God's unconditional love for that person just the way they are. The other kind of love is a love that's more like a brotherly love. We'll talk about that in a few moments. That's more like, I love you because you're part of the family. It's more of a human-to-human type of thing. And the agape love is God's love for us. The third is eros love, which is your sensual, sexual love. And a lot of times, people make you think that that word eros is found in Scripture. It really is not. That Greek word for that sexual type of sensuality type love is not found in Scripture. However, the concept of that is found in Scripture, more like, uh, I love you if you love me, and let the state worry about the kids kind of a thing. So again, that's not in Scripture. What is in Scripture now, what I want to talk about, is the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts, that really is His love for us, that we can love other people with that love, that special, unconditional love. In our culture here, we would use the word aloha. Would you say that with me? Aloha. You probably know that that last letter, the last couple letters, ha, When they would say it, they would face off to each other when they were really giving their alohas. Yeah, they do the hugs and that kind of stuff, but they would really be breathing into that person. Aloha. Now, it wasn't because they wanted the other person to be able to smell their breath. It was because it was their way of saying, breath is life, it's living, it's who I am. And what I want to do is I want to take my life and unite it to your life, and I want to breathe life into you. So when I say aloha, I'm saying I love you and I want to add value to your life. I want to express my love to you and together we're going to come in this love relationship of adding that to each other. Now that being the case, when I say in scripture this love here, think about it that way because we have so much misused the word love that we forget that the good that it can actually do. We all like to feel love, maybe the emotional kind. We like to know that people love us and are loyal to us. But if you would think in terms of breathing life, so what I'd like you to do is think about the people in your family for a moment. Which, which one or couple of them just feel like they're just either unloved, they're depleted, the relationship has gone soft or sour or south or nearly dead. You want to breathe life into them, then you want to love them. But in this verse, it tells us to do it without hypocrisy. Now, most of us know what the word hypocrisy is, but some of us don't understand the severity of it in our own life. Where did the word really come from? It really meant two-faced, and I'm really reducing it to a simple explanation. Back, if you remember, in the days of thespians, I want to say that carefully and clearly so you understand. Thespians, they have symbols for the thespian societies. It would be a mask that had a smile on it and a mask that would have a sad face on it. And those masks represented what kind of a play you'd be really watching or during the play what kind of emotion was expressing so the actor or actress would hold up the mask, if it was to be a comedy, with the smiley face. If it was a drama or something very similar, they would have the sad face. And they did that is because it didn't matter what face the actor or actress had behind the mask, they just wanted the audience to see what the mask was so they would know if they should laugh or boo or whatever else they might do. Now that's how we got the word hypocrisy. And it kind of fits very well with people today. We have really learned how to project ourselves to others in such a way as that we've learned to courteously get along with them. I'm talking about those that are pretty normal. But yet inside, we really don't want to be around them. They don't really float our boat. We don't, they bothered us or whatever. So we do the courteous smile, but we really don't agape. We have not really chosen to spend the time to know where in their life in which we need to breathe life into them. You know, if you go to churches today... Um, you probably will pick out a church with a certain criteria and some of that criteria will be, is it a friendly church? How's the music? What about the nursery? How are the bathrooms? Are they clean especially? What's the message like? Does he connect with me? And a lot of other reasons. We find that when people come to our church, they fill out a survey when we send them a letter and they send it back. The two biggest things we get is, number one, they, I don't understand this, but they love the preaching from the service here. But the second that really speaks to me is when they said the friendliness of our people. And for 10 years, I have... Um, affirmed you on your friendliness, on our friendliness with people, and we really are that way. If you've been in here for a long time and been on the lanai, you'll never stand alone there without someone coming up and greeting you and engaging in a conversation with you. Now, I don't want to put that down. I just want to say to you that you are now on a two-wheel bike, and with the friendliness, you're now starting to move forward in a direction, and you've got some training wheels on it. Most churches don't even have that. You have that. But I'd like to take those training wheels off for a moment, And let let us know that it's not just a friendliness because we can be friendly to people but not demonstrate love to people. In other words, it's easier to be friendly. Sometimes it's difficult because you're not used to saying hi to a stranger. But at the same time, to really love that person, that means you are really listening. You're going to go out of your way to do something for that person that that person will receive life breathed into them from you. What needs do they have? Now, obviously, you can't always do that on the first conversation. But you are driven to, how can I love this person more? What do they need? Do they need to know where there's a room here? Do they need to know where to take the kids? Do they, have they met anybody else? Or I know someone who works where you work. Let me introduce you to them. And how can I find it? what? How long have you been on the island? Do you need someone here to help you with something? Now we move from the friendly stage. The training wheels are off. And we're breathing life into them because it's authentic love that we're giving to them. So that's what it says. Let your love be without hypocrisy, implying this, that our love can be with hypocrisy. And so now we're going to have love without hypocrisy. Well, let's look at the next rose in our bouquet of beautiful roses of loving someone else. And that would be to love must be selective. Love must be selective. You see, you have to put a governor on your love and what you do and how you do what you do. And God does give us a governor. And he gives us that governor by telling us to abhor that which is evil and cling to to what is good? Now, as I looked at that phrase, in order to abhor what is evil, you have to be selective and know what evil is. If you're going to cling to that which is good, then you have to have discernment to know what is good. So let's just come to the very center here and look at the word "cling." There, you might want to circle that. I decided that the word "cling" that's a neat word. Well, how could I really describe it? No better way I could do it than to go back to the original language. That says that word "cling" comes from a word that we would get our word "glue" from. Or bond with, and so I need to glue or be glued to that which is good. I need to bond to that which is good, but I need to abhor that which is evil. Well, we hardly use the word abhor today. In fact, I even find some Christians—they hardly even blush at evil any longer. And I'm not putting anyone down. I'm just letting you know that sometimes we have so desensitized ourselves from that which is evil that we rarely even blush. We kind of say, "Okay, I'll just kind of—I'll endure it for a moment because I want to get on with the other stuff." Instead of really saying, I really abhor what that is. I can imagine there are times when those uh, men and women were cleaning out Kakaako to try to prepare the place there for more of the general public to use. And they had to come across certain things that were in there that I could only rem- imagine, not not only so much evil, but just things that would bring them sickness and disease to their own lives that they would touch that was left behind. And I think that those men and women that were in there to clean that stuff up, or maybe some of those that even had to live amongst that, that didn't have the help yet to get out of all of that, how terrible that must have been to be around so much of that. And that's just sanitation. And let's talk about that. Sanitation can be washed off, but evil goes real deep. It goes into our thought patterns. It goes into our heart. It goes into our life and our lips, and it becomes part of our whole life. And the Bible says we need to abhor that which is evil, to get away from it as much as we can, to run from it. Then that word cling to that which is good. I decided to think and go through Scripture to find out what does it mean to think which is good. Probably the best passage would be Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. That talks about whatsoever a good report, whatsoever a virtue. And it goes through the wonderful list. Then at the end it says, and think on these things. If you really look at the word think in the Greek, you're going to see that it means more than just think. Kind of cast your memory about It actually means to cling to that which is good, cling to all of those elements. Um, I don't know that you know this, but one of our deacon's families here had two daughters, and uh, they wanted to go skydiving for their birthday. And so I can only imagine when they saw their daughter get up into the plane with the other skydiver that uh, they were really nervous. They knew that the parachute was strapped to this gal. They knew that this parachutist that was trained in this was strapped to their daughter, but you wonder if the parachute would open, the parachute would stay strapped, and if the guy that she was strapped to to be the actual one to pull the ripcord will stay alive long enough to be able to pull the ripcord and make it safely to the ground. I could only imagine that girl because I know how I would be. I'd be holding on so tightly to this person, I think his eyeballs would pop out because I would have to depend so much on this person here to do that. That's what I think about if we really love people, that we need to set the standard to separate from that which is evil and then to cling to that which is good. Well, that brings us now to a question. How do we do this? How do we make the right choices? Well, here's two suggestions for you. First of all, you need to know what is right, what is good, and what is not. The very best place, the standard that would be the divine one would be Scripture. And I'm finding those that really know the Word They're the ones that have accessibility to that which is good. They will have the discernment to know what is good. They will have the discernment to know what is right. And so if you really want to sharpen your focus of your conscience, your thinking, and your ability to make right choices, then you need to know what's right, and the best place to go is in Scripture. And that's why when you go to a church, you want to go to a church where they're teaching the Word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, in a relatable way so that you can best, even in the limited amount of time you have on a Sunday morning, to get the most you can get in that time. You need to know what is right. But that's not enough. There are a lot of people that immerse themselves from one seminar, one Bible study, one DVD after another. They got their bookshelves loaded with vinyl albums with material in there, but yet they never live it. So the second one is you have to have the courage to choose to do what is right. And that's where I'm praying that we as a church continue to grow. I do believe we're learning what is right from all the different ministry avenues that we have here, the teaching avenues. But now the question is, have we come to the point that God says that we need to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word? And that's the choice that we need to do. And to do that, you'll see it because we will abhor that which is evil because we'll know what evil is, and we will cling to that which is right Are good, because we'll know what that is because of the word, and then we make the right choice to do it. Some of you are aware, one of our Supreme Court judges, by the name of Clarence Thomas, he was asked this question about dealing with criticism that comes in a high-profile position. And all of you that are in a high-profile position, you know that you will be facing criticism. It comes with the territory. You're hired knowing that you're going to get that. He replied with the most important thing in his life was this. He said, I knew when I was going to be this, especially when you're a judge and having to make these decisions on behalf of others, that there'll be tens of thousands and maybe more that won't agree with you and will really criticize you. He said, that's why it's paramount that you know what is right, what you believe is right. You're not just idea that you have convictions about what you know to be truth and what is right, and you stand on all of those so that at the end of the day, You'll be able to hear the truth louder than you hear the voices of the critics that are out there. And so I would tell you that each one of you need to develop a very healthy set of biblical moral values, biblical, moral, biblical theology, so that you know what you believe, so you can hear what's out there. It doesn't mean you don't love them. You will love them differently, but at the same time, you will choose to do that which is good. And you can put your head on the pillow at night and knowing that it's okay. I know where I stand before the Lord. Now, I want to give you a bit of a caution. Some people are so cocky about what they know that they never give any room in their life to grow. No room in their life to ever change. No room in their life ever to bend. So we always want to be on this learning curve to be able to grow, to be able to bend. I was um, taught this about 15 years ago at what they called a Preach the Word conference. At this particular conference, they had a Q&A Uh, with all the guest speakers. And the guest speakers at this particular conference on the same platform, interestingly enough, was John MacArthur, was um, Greg Laurie, was Alistair Begg, was um, uh, Chuck Smith, and uh, Chuck Swindoll. They're all on the platform. And during the lunch, we're all eating lunch, thousands of us pastors in in Anaheim, California at the time. And they're all firing questions. And and I, I, I... I reluctantly, these pastors sometimes, where's your brains? What was your most embarrassing moment? When did you forget your sermon and, and all this stuff? I wanted some substance. So someone asked this question. Shouted from the back. How do you guys prepare your sermons? That was a pretty good question. I wanted to hear how they do it because they're all different guys and they're well-respected and they handle the word. Well, I remember what Chuck Smith said. And he was about 75 at the time, maybe 70, 75 And he said, well, I'm going to show you. He says, on my desk, he says, I have two computers. Now, remember, this was in the the, uh, late 90s. He said, I have two computers. I'm hooked to the Internet here. I've got my sermon on the third computer. I'm checking out all of this stuff. I'm jotting all of this stuff down. I'm just loaded with technology. And when he said that, I thought, not so much about the technology, but this principle. I pray that when I become 70 and 75 and 80, that I am willing to stay on track to continue to learn new things so that I would be more value to the people that are around me or the people with whom I come in contact. I want to continue growing. And so I was so glad to see that. And so I jotted that down, and I pray that I'm that way. I pray that I'm still learning and growing and developing and strengthening and offloading stuff that one time I did believe that I found that wasn't as clear or correct as they used to believe. I pray that's with you. I'm learning to do that. Well, then Chuck Swindoll, he then says... I want you to see how I study my sermons. In fact, I've got my tool right here. And He picks up his briefcase and he puts it on his lap and he clicks the little snaps and up comes the, the, uh, the briefcase and I just can't wait to see what kind of a gadget is he using to do his sermon. So he... Puts it up in front of it. We can't see anything. Can't even hardly see his face now as he's looking in here. And he pulls this out and he closes his briefcase. And it was nothing more than a yellow tablet in his Bible. He says, I just love the feel of the pages. Now what did that tell me? That tells me that I don't have to run after every new thing that's out there. That I can still rest on that which works for you. As long as we're still open and willing to learn in our life. And that's what it's about. If you love people, you're going to hate that which is evil. And what is right, if you love people, you're going to cling to that which is right because you want to help them with what you've been helped with so they can go and grow for the Lord. Let's look at the third one. All right, the third one, love must also demonstrate tender affection. Must demonstrate tender affection. Now that's man's word here. So let's go back to the word of God. If you look at the scripture here, it's real interesting. It's just a short little section of verse 10. It says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Well, let's kind of break that down together as a family here, all right? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be devoted. Well, if you look at the word devoted, it's, it's a hard word if, actually in the original language to come up with a good, clear definition of it. I think the best contemporized definition of it, from all that I could get from the Greek in the past, is simply this. Be loyal. Be loyal to people. You know, that's very interesting, that concept of loyalty. When I hire staff, you know, I can't make a person be loyal. I hope I could earn their respect, and I hope I can earn their loyalty, but that's something you can't legislate. You can't say to someone that you've got to be loyal. That has to come from inside. And God is saying here that we need to dig deep in Christ to be loyal to the next person. So what are we to do? We're supposed to be loyal. Now the next question, if you just look at the little passage there, who are we to be loyal to? Circle the phrase, one another. That means it doesn't leave anyone out, that we're to be loyal to you. Now our loyalty to you might be that we'll affirm you when you need to be affirmed. Our loyalty to you might be if you need to be corrected, we will correct you. Our loyalty to you might be that we will pray for you and be silent around you. But whatever it is, we're loyal to you and your spiritual life development. If you don't know Christ, we're still loyal to you. We're going to stay with you, hoping that in time, inch by inch, you're going to step across the line of faith in Christ alone. We are loyal to you, being devoted to one another. And I hope that you would be that. So that means that we're not quickly going to break our commitments, break our promises, break our vows, that we will be loyal to them, good days and bad days. We'll talk about that in a moment. But now here's the reason why. How do I do this? Where are what to be devoted? Who? One another. How? Through brotherly love. That's an interesting word too, brotherly love. Uh, most of you know that brotherly love basically talks about loving each other as brothers. It's a different Greek word than agape love. It's loving each other as a family would. And if you don't mind, let me just tell you a little bit about our family and show you how it kind of really relates. Not that we've got the greatest family. I think every family struggles and challenges and all of that. But for those of you that don't know this, I have a sister, and my sister is 17 months younger than me. I have a brother. I'm the middle of three siblings, okay? Um, My brother is 16 years older than me. So I want you to know there's a big gap between my brother and me. So I have that weird syndrome. I'm like the two-born in the family, but I'm also like the firstborn. So I'm the first two-born syndrome. That's deadly, you know what I'm trying to say? And so now I have that going on. My sister lives in San Antonio, Texas. My brother lives in Weston, Florida, which is outside of Fort Lauderdale near the Everglades. They both have different personalities. We all are different from one another. We all like things differently. We all have different sets of um, understandings of politics even. So we're all different in different ways. But yet there is a unique bond of commitment to one another that goes farther beyond than our politics what we like on our pizza, to how we value and remember the memories of mom and dad. Because here's what the word brotherly love really boils down to, out of the same womb. Now when I looked at that deeper, out of the same womb, there is a covenantal relationship that I can't even explain when you come out of the same womb. Are you tracking with me? Because I'm going to get real deep here for some of you dealing with adoption for a moment. I think we can speak a little bit more on adoption, Carol and me, because we have adopted. Some people that have adopted kids, um, they seem to connect almost, but not totally. And they wonder, why is that case? I believe that somewhere involved in this is this uniqueness that comes out of the same womb that we cannot explain, a psyche thing that goes on, that there is a closeness there that is not there with an adopted child. That adopted child... In time, it struggles with their own who am I, why am I here, where am I going, where did I come from, and all of that that we then need to work through. Does that mean that adoption is not good, it's not healthy, you shouldn't do it? Not at all. In fact, if anything, that would probably explain this verse right here. That even though we're not out of the same physical womb, that we have those kinds of things that we'll forever have in uh, common, we are out of the womb of God. I like to say we're out of the tomb of Jesus Christ. Because it was when Jesus Christ died and rose again and paid our sin debt and we trusted Christ, it's as if we died with Christ, was buried with Christ, and rose again with with Christ as a believer in Christ. So not so much the womb, but the tomb, we've all come out together if you know Christ as Savior. So out of this brotherly love, for the very fact that you are a blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ, I really do need to show my devotion to you. Devotion to one another whether we're in the same building at the same time or we're separate. Now, let me take it a step further. Our church here is a church that takes a strong stand on biblical doctrine, the accuracy of it, especially the correct and clear presentation of the gospel and a lot of other very important biblically defined truths that we stand together. But there are other people on our island that are Christians that know Christ as their Savior, but they might do their music different. They might jump up and down different they might experience different things they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ the island is small and they need us whatever that god has given to us in truth and clarity and passion whatever we have as little as it might be as small as we might be that we would reach out and give them what we have that we would be loyal to them and at the same time keep our ear open so that we might hear from them so, they could add a little bit more value to us. So, when it talks about demonstrating tender affection, it means like we might growl at one another, but at the end of the day, we're going to make sure we do our excuse me, our ho'oponopono, where we do our forgiveness and we make things right with each other. Let me go to number four. What else does love do? Love must honor others. Love must honor others. This verse says, in the translation that I like to use, it says, give preference to one another in honor. Notice the one another, that's why I get in this section, this is relationships with each other. So give preference to one another in honor. Now, if you go back to the original word, when it talks about give preference, it really means take the lead or be the leader. And so how does that fit in there? Well, here's how I believe that they were using that word in the context of loving each other with a spirit of humility. It's this. You take the lead in showing honor to others that are around you. So in other words, it's not all about you that you're the big guy. It just means that if someone needs to have a word to be said nicely about them, you be the first one to say it. You go out of the way to make sure that no one is left out. Nobody is forgotten. Everybody is remembered. Rich or poor, young or old, virile or or infirm.